And I said, as you think back, when you're moving along in years, I think you will realize the most important thing you leave behind is not a legacy as such. Rather, it will be the influence you've had on other people by how they've observed you operate or, or work or act. And not only that, but how you've made them feel as a person, as an individual. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Andrew Darvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter & Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about how they got their start, how they make it work, and what keeps them going. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate. On today's show, we're talking to P&G alumni leader, John Pepper. John is the former CEO and chairman of P&G, as well as the former chairman of the board of the Walt Disney Company. Yeah, it was a really great interview with probably the perfect person to launch the PNG alumni podcast with. I mean, not only because of the work that he did at PNG, but also the impact that he had for pretty much anyone who's ever gone through that organization. Yeah. What's funny is so many of the other executives we interviewed on this show all asked us if and when we were interviewing John. So it's a really great um, first episode for this podcast. But here's a quick bio about John. John grew up in the small town of Pottsville, Pennsylvania, and later attended Yale University. After attending Yale, he served in the U.S. Navy, and upon completing his tour of duty, John took a job at Procter & Gamble, where he started at the bottom, just like the rest of us, and he would spend the next 40 years rising through the ranks, ultimately becoming CEO and chairman, and being regarded as one of the company's most celebrated leaders. After leaving P&G, John became the CEO of the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center, he was then asked to join the board of the Walt Disney Company, which he later became chairman of the board. He's written many books, maintains a regular blog, and though he's now retired, he remains really active in his community. Yeah, and and what's not kind of listed in that bio is is his like almost celebrity is like the wrong word, but I'm I was like this of all the interviews that we're doing like is the most I'm like fanboying about someone that we're getting a chance to to talk to because he's this this incredibly impactful human being the way that i think about it and this is only in a i only mean this in any type of positive sense is he's kind of like a corporate mr rogers yeah you know that's that's really good uh yeah if you don't like mr rogers like i don't know what to say <laughs> like and if you don't like john pepper if you don't know john pepper listen to this interview and and then let's talk but you, you can't not like what he has to say and what the man stands for and the mr rogers analogy is so apt because Mr. Rogers shaped us. He shaped our generation. He shaped many generations. And for many PNGers, PNG was that first big job. And even though John um, had, I think, retired right before you and I both got there, he was so omnipresent in like the values um, that people espoused. People talked about him and the lessons. Um, I mean, I, I think right after I joined, they took the entire 11th floor where all the C-suite sat um, and they made half of it a learning center called the John Pepper Learning Center. Um, and that was just kind of 
Those, that was actually my first knowledge of who John Pepper was. It's crazy. Yeah, that was a name on this learning center, which was always fascinating because you, I mean, one, it speaks to the the value that PNG put in development was that it was at that C-suite, like that that top level. And also you would go and do, I remember doing like a new hire training and like running into these executives, like seeing AG in the elevator, like walking through and it's like, oh, that's like, oh yeah, there's, it's it's back to that level of, it's just like everyone being on a first name basis, the like, hey, we're all human, we're all authentic, we're all connected. And I think, you know, John was a big believer of that, you know, pretty much everyone, at least at that time, kind of has a John Pepper story. And for me, I remember, I don't know, I remember they they gave out a copy of his book, um, What Really Matters. Did you get that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think required, not required reading, but yeah, yeah, it's a good book. But but it was good and it was great that they gave, but I was, I remember getting the book and I was like, am I really going to read this? Am I going to really enjoy it? Is this just going to be like PNG is great and good for working here. And it was an incredibly valuable read, like for any business people in terms of what really matters and the stories that, you know, Pepper told and everything. And then I remember kind of like, Oh, okay, now I'm starting to understand why people talk about John Pepper in this way. And then I actually met him very briefly at an event. And in the brief moments that he would talk with you, he he made it feel like you were the only person in the room. It's not like he was distracted. It's not like he was looking around to go and talk to other people. He was like authentically there. And I think that, I don't know, that's such a, a meaningful thing to be able to give people at whatever your status level to say, hey, this as a new hire, I'm paying attention to you and you matter in this organization. Yeah. And, you know, even um, the run up to this interview, um, you know, we had a prep call with them and I thought it was just going to be all logistics and microphones and audio settings. And we spent like 40, not even recording like 45 minutes. He wanted to know about me, my family, my role. Uh, and yeah, you feel like you really matter. You're the only person in the room when you talk to him. And he spoke in the interview about this idea of transformational relationships. You know, many of us talk about like, it's not just what you say, it's what you do, but John takes it to the next level and emphasizes that it's about how you make people feel. And some of the stories that he tells in, in this episode about him coming up through the company and his first two-up boss when he moved to Cincinnati as a young man just out of the Navy, had him over for dinner regularly. <laughs> and I don't know, Drew, <laughs> have you ever had a boss like have you over to their house for dinner? I don't know if I've ever been to their over for dinner, which one in the interview, I thought it was very, John's got a fantastic sense of humor. He's like, hey, it almost was too many times over to his boss's house. He, <laughs> he said was he had to, like, excuses to not go. Over. He's yeah. coming with an excuse why I can't. Um, but uh, so fantastic humor in the interview. But yeah, for me personally, I haven't, I don't think I went to anyone's house. I remember when I was interviewing for a role in PNG, uh, the hiring manager who ultimately hired me was my boss for a long time. Fantastic human being, um, Pablo. Um, he was like, listen, we'll go to dinner. We'll go to a nice place in New York. Cause I don't, I think I'd only ever been to New York city once. And like, do you have any food restrictions or anything? And I'm like, I, I just don't enjoy fish. I never grew up eating seafood, but aside from that, I'm good. And so we go, we do the interview the day of, it goes really well. I was like, Oh, let's, uh, you know, I'll take you out to dinner afterwards. And we go to a fish restaurant, like almost everything was on the menu. And I was like, oh no, did my interview not go well? Is this like punishment? <laughs> and turns, turns you get? out he was What'd like, I, I, got, I, got the I got the chicken. I didn't get okay. fish. I got the, there was one chicken dish. Everything else was seafood. 
Uh, so as I say, you know, always get the chicken dish at the, at the seafood restaurant. But I found out that he had just misunderstood me. He thought I had said, I think somewhere in the line, I maybe forgot a knot or something like that, but he thought, oh, he loved seafood. And, um, so it still ended up working, but like, no, that's, that's my, I, I never went to out to someone's place, but when people would well, come Drew, into town, we'd always take people around as well. Yeah. Yeah. We would do that a lot. Like if someone was coming in town from the middle East or from Asia, you know, we don't want them stuck in the hotel at the downtown restaurants. My then girlfriend, now wife and I were, we take them out with our friends. We're like, Hey, you're coming out with us. Um, well, Drew, look, uh, you don't work for me. But you can always come over to my house for a dinner of fish anytime you'd like. <laughs> uh, yes, I will. I will happily order the chicken from your <laughs> fish only. Well, look, um, back back to the John Pepper uh, conversation. It was really long, deep, insightful conversation. And for this podcast, we're only going to share some of the highlights because we spent a lot of time talking with John. We went into not only his time at P&G, but his time on the board of Disney with stories and experiences about Bob Iger and Steve Jobs. Um, we even got to some current events. You know, I've recently become a fan of his blog, Pet Perspectives, where he shares some really informed takes on the current state of the world. But for the full interview with John Pepper, um, which is I highly recommend you listen to, um, as soon as you're done with this one, or hop on over to pglums.com slash podcast and follow the link for the full John Pepper interview. One quick note, there's a little background noise in the first few minutes of our conversation with John. Don't worry, it clears up after his first story. But for now, let's dive right in. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation with John Pepper. John, welcome to the podcast. I'm, I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, good to be here. Thank you for the invite. A lot of people already know your professional story, but I want to talk about your life before that. You grew up in a small town, kind of like myself, Pottsville, Pennsylvania. What's a story from your childhood that shaped you? Well, that's a question that could lend itself to more than you want to hear. I uh, think think of early stories that were important. Uh, they would certainly start with the with the love of my parents, and particularly my mother, who uh, conveyed almost like it was in the air a feeling that I could accomplish just about anything. Very high expectations, but without ever having it come across to me, at least as I remember it, as a, a burden or as a, an expectation which if wasn't fulfilled, would be something that would be hurtful to her or I should be embarrassed about. That was the most important. I mean, there's a wonderful comment in, in Brothers Karasmasov from a character named Olyosha. And he says, if there's one thing you can carry from your childhood that can affect your whole life, that's really all you need. And for me, that certainly would have been that love. A little later, you actually went away to school in Rhode Island, and I, I did something very similar in high school, and honestly, it changed the trajectory of my life. What what was moving away at such a young age like? Well, it was uh, comfortable, frankly. Uh, there was a lot of difficulty in our home. My father was an alcoholic. I eventually had not yet, but broke up my mother and my father's marriage. And I didn't ask to go away to school. My mother and father came to me and said, you know, John, I think it would be good if you went away for your last two years of high school. And I said, okay. I was up for that and went away in junior year, you know, wondering whether I'd have any friends or get to know anybody. I was from the beginning, a loner. But it was, it was life-changing in many ways. One was the impact of other people's expectations 
on yourself. I was driven to succeed, and I was pretty smart, and I loved learning. Uh, but I always remember my first year there. I was a junior. At the end of the first semester, my housemaster came to me and said, John, you're not going to go home for Thanksgiving. I said, Father, why not? He said, I've got, I said, I've got to go home. And he said, no, you don't. And there are two reasons you're not going to go home. One, you're not doing as well as you should in math. And he taught me math. And your room is a bloody mess. <laughs> well, <laughs> I couldn't disagree on the room, but I, I respectfully did disagree on the math. As I said, Father, you post the grades, and I can see I'm, I'm number one in your class. And he said, I know you are, John. He said, but you know, you could be doing a lot better wow. than you are right now. You could be doing better, and you should be doing better. And I'm going to help you do better over this Thanksgiving vacation. Well, at that, I, I said rather plaintively, but Father, I understand what you're saying, but my parents will insist I come home. To which he said, no, they won't. I've already talked to them, and they agreed that you should stay. I never would have gone, gotten into Yale if I had not gone to that school. I'm sure of that. That made a difference. If I hadn't gone to Yale, I, of course, wouldn't have been in the Navy. I had to be in the Navy in order to pay my way through Yale, or ROTC. And if I hadn't been in the Navy, I'd never been hired by Procter & Gamble. And if I hadn't been hired by Procter & Gamble, I wouldn't have had the life or above all the wife that I've had because I wouldn't have met her. So I'd say that we all have turning points in our lives. You've had them. Everyone listening to this has had them. And you hope they're the, you've taken the right choice. In this case, my parents really led me to it. And then once into whatever that choice is, you just do your damnedest to make the most out of it and keep learning, 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 and getting to know the beauty of getting to know other and different people. It's it's amazing because all of our lives have kind of this like chain effect. You don't know what the chain is going to be, but one to your point, one thing leads to the next and the next thing and the next thing. And you can't predict the future. It's all about just being in the moment, being the best you can and making in the moment. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I think uh, there's a wonderful story by Tolstoy called The Three Questions. And one of them is, you know, where's the right place to be? And it's where you are right now and who's the best place to be or who's the best person to be with who you are with right now and then what's the best thing to be doing what you're doing right now so that's right living in the moment and making the most of it for yourself but for other people as well and the difference you might be able to make in their life we're all on a journey of life for a very short period of time we don't know how long it'll be what we do what we do know is that we can be everything we can be ourselves but above all Try to make a difference in other people's lives who are also on this journey of life, which we'll usually know very little, but by coming to know them, we may know more. But to switch gears a little bit to your career, and PNG specifically, in other interviews, you've talked about the first time you heard about them. You were just working on a newspaper at Yale. What was it? Was an early impression of the company. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, sure, I can. I was working on the newspaper. I was the advertising manager at the time. The year before that, I'd reviewed plays for the paper, but I think they decided I'd be better at business. <laughs> um, in any event, I was 
wrapping up an ad that we were getting from this company called Procter & Gamble. They were on campus to recruit for brand management, as it turned out. And after I got the contract signed, I I asked him, what's this thing you call brand management? His name was George Goodrich. I still remember George. This is 1958. And he described it to me pretty much as I remember it now, being you'll get your own business, you'll be able to run it pretty much on your own from day one. Well, it sounded pretty interesting. I found it a little bit hard to believe, but I filed it away and didn't really think about it again probably for five years. Wow. Um, five years. I was getting out of the Navy, and I decided that I would spend one year before I take a job, which surprised me because I was recruited and already been admitted to Harvard Law School. But I thought I'd take a one-year tour in business before I went to school. So I got a deferral for a year from that registrar. And then I had to decide where I'm going to go to work for a year in business. Why I decided to do that is surprising. It was really, I wasn't ready to go back to study in the stacks, which I loved in college. Uh, but I'd been running around North Atlantic, chasing what we thought were Russian submarines, and I wasn't ready to go sit in a library yet. So I had to decide where I would go, and I instantly remembered George Goodrich and this thing he talked about with such enthusiasm, and it was his enthusiasm that I remembered. It was the sparkle in his eye. Literally, I remembered that more than I did exactly what he said. But his enthusiasm so impacted me that I thought, that's the place I want to look at. What he talked about and the way he said it sounded exciting. So that put me on the path to um, recruiting. I recruited, I went to one other company, which I felt I wanted to do in order to be businesslike. Uh, I picked the one closest to the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard, Scott Paper. The headline story was P&G invades the paper field. Well, I went in and went through whatever questions he had to ask me. And at the end, he said, do you have any questions of me? And taking advantage of what I just read, I said, I do have one. I see P&G is entering the paper field. I said, how do you feel about that? And I don't remember what he said exactly, but he would convey literally was the feeling of abject terror. (laughs) He did. It was abject terror. And it was like, we're done and it's the game's over. Uh, well, I left there even more convinced that I hoped I could get a job at P&G. And of course I did. And I called the registrar six months after I joined P&G and told him not to hold that spot, that I wasn't going to go to law school. I wasn't sure I was going to spend a career at P&G. I would have rather doubted it. But that's, of course, what happened. And you enter P&G and You've called, you know, your perception of getting into business is more than making a buck. So can you describe a little bit more about the appeal to go into business, you know, as a guy who studied, worked in the Navy, et cetera, and and just why business? Well, why business was I thought it would keep me busy. It would be active. I thought it would be fun. I, in fact, worried about whether it was going to be more about backslapping and sucking up than it would be about the quality of your idea and selling it. This was the pleasant surprise at P&G. This was a mind blower, how truth was pursued no matter where it led, how above all, 
truth was pursued in figuring out what the consumer needed, making sure the product was right. It was also mind-blowing in the quality of the people. Not that I didn't expect good people. I knew this was a great company. But I didn't think I'd run into people as smart as the people I'd run into in college. And I did, in many ways, maybe smarter. So I found myself in what I probably figured would have been a competitive environment. I liked that. But I didn't think I'd be one with the values of the place. And the commitment to the consumer, genuine, deep commitment. This wasn't fancy words or rhetoric. This is why we existed. And the commitment to doing the right thing came very early. People are lucky in their bosses. Yeah, I was very lucky in my bosses. My initial two-up boss treated me like a son. His wife and he invited me to their home for dinner, not once, not twice, three or four times to the point where I honestly was thinking of excuses not to come <laughs> because I wanted to do something else. Uh, he made me feel valued. My three-up boss was the CEO of the company who preceded me at Arched. And you had to really be ready for him. And I took that as fair warning. And I found Ed to be unbelievable. He'd spend hours with me one-on-one -on -one, going over a competitive analysis. How could we make it a stronger plan? What more can we get out of this piece of research? The fact that he spent this much time with me told me I mattered. And that means everything to a person in their whole life but perhaps especially to people coming up in the organization wondering, is this a place for me? Can I make it here? Am I valued as an individual, not just as a person who gins out a research summary? And I was very, very lucky in that. And that was something I did not expect. And the whole comradeship family, with all the tough-minded arguing we did, and there was all of that, was something that was precious. And it was really fundamental. Those things I'm talking about ever so brief, briefly are really what led me to stay with the company. And believing it today, long after I joined it in 63, as I did when I was there, and I think I will as long as I live. Yeah. It's, you know, when I was coming up and starting to manage people, one of my first managers at the company, he gave me this advice and he was like, Raman, manage the person first. And that just stuck with me. Um, and it's, it's driven and I see that in other, other people I came up with That's just the approach of management people first ahead of anything. There's failures, right? Things that didn't work out or what are some of those things? What moments in your career where things didn't work out the way you thought they would? Well, there were so many, I could take a week <laughs> in that hidden. I think, um, probably the one carried the greatest learning was when I was general manager in Italy. And it came at a very difficult time that we had inflation that was running 20%. Communist government was within one point of taking over the government in Italy. And it took us about 18 months to work through this and get to any decent level of profit and volume growth. We were now ready to be able to introduce a new brand, and we needed to decide which it would be. And we had two choices. One was Pampers, still in the very early days inconclusive evidence in Europe is how it would be working. Or the other alternative was to introduce a bar soap, the leading brand in France called Montsevon. 
it looked to be an easy proposition to bring in this market leader in France and add to our portfolio. I chose Mozavone, thinking that we had a year to get more evidence, maybe a better profit position to introduce Pampers. Nice idea, bad result. So I came out of that indelibly imprinted in my mind when you're facing a choice and a reasonable set of options, go for the big win. Go for the big win. Not what you think is the safe win, which in this case didn't be, turn out to be a safe win at all. So you might ask, what impact did it have? Well, it had a huge impact, I think, as it was in my mind as we went into Eastern and Central Europe, and also when we went into China. And I was bound and determined that we would not be leaving brand categories on the table for our competition, particularly ones that involve big first mover advantage, which diapers do on the table. So we went very aggressively, certainly in Eastern and Central Europe, more aggressively at some risk, but I felt very appropriate risk. And on that lesson, we're not going for the big win where you had a right to succeed. And the failure to do that was something that certainly played out in my mind for a long, long time and has, in fact, when I was with the Disney company and advocating strongly that we move ahead with the acquisition of Pixar at a time when there were many members of the board that questioned the price that was being demanded of us. So, and I want to come back to Pixar in a few minutes, but so is that what do you think makes smart leaders fail? is not making the big swings, making the safe bet? Well, I think that's one of the reasons. I think it's not being decisive enough, not being decisive enough on what the key thing you have to do is and biting the bullet and doing it. Mm -hmm. I think that's one. I think another thing, though, that really leads for you be smart, competent, or up to now very successful leaders to fail is that for some reason or another, they don't gain the respect of their people. They don't gain it. Maybe they don't earn it. Maybe they aren't listening well enough. Maybe they're not showing they matter. Maybe they haven't dealt them in well enough on the development of the strategic plan. But I've seen those leaders that I would have expected could succeed failing because they haven't respected the organization, maybe the preceding history enough to understand how to make dramatic change. And dramatic change is usually needed in some areas at any point in time, sometimes more than other. So, yes, I think I think not making that big bet change and biting the bullet on something that has to be done, in that case on Pixar, in Disney's case, recognizing that the creative engine of Disney alone, Disney Animation, had been broken for years. And was not, not likely to get fixed internally, mm-hmm. certainly not, not on the pace that Bob Iger wanted. And he saw in Pixar, which has got many lessons attached to it, including relationships. It never would have happened if it wasn't for the relationship between Bob Iger and Steve Jobs and the trust, the mutual trust they had in one another. If it weren't for that, Steve never would have agreed to put Pixar and Disney's or any other company's hands. As the chairman of the board, you had this opportunity to work with, honestly, two figures that have had an outsized impact on our culture, Steve Jobs and Bob Iger, who you've mentioned. 
Are there any other interesting observations or stories about the two of them? Because you just had such a unique vantage point to watching these two men work together and working with them. Well, it was a unique opportunity. It was really a, it was really weird being asked to join the board. It was at the, it was the age of 64, 65. I, I had to think about it, and I certainly had to think hard whether to become chairman because I also become the CEO of the Freedom Center. Mm-hmm. But I did it, and it was a privilege. About those two men you mentioned and about Disney, yeah, there's several things that stick out will forever. One is the on Steve, I think two things. One is it's just his commitment to excellence. Someone asked me, a P&G person asked me some years ago that I worked with him closely, what was the single most defining characteristic about Steve Jobs as you came to know him? I said, well, I never heard that question before, but the answer comes to my mind, and that was his maniacal commitment to excellence. That was the word I used, maniacal commitment to excellence. My use of that word was surprising. I never remember using it before, even seeing it in writing. But maniacal was the only word I could think of to describe what I saw his commitment to excellence. It showed up in everything, the creation of the iPhone, the iPad. Now, Steve sometimes took that to boundaries that I would not recommend for my children, in truth. And he'd say the same thing. The other thing about Steve is that he was a counterintuitive thinker. I'll remember the discussion we were having around the board meeting when I was chairman. We were trying to figure out what do we do about counterfeits of our of our DVDs in China. Now, so we were coming up with all these things around the brainstorming session of the board meeting. Uh, get more police involved. Get special overwraps. Oh, we had other ideas too. And he, after listening to this quietly as he usually was, said very little. He broke in and he said. Folks, you got it all wrong. Well, that brought the meeting to a stop. I said, Steve, what do you have in mind? He said, the answer here is perfectly obvious. I said, what is it? He said, you've got to lower, you've got to meet him on price. I said, Steve, they're selling for a dollar. He said, well, maybe maybe you go to $2 then. And I said, well, Steve, we won't make any money. And he said, you're not making any now. You're not selling anything. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, You're misconceiving the purpose of having these DVDs. The reason you have them, the real role they're going to play, is they're going to introduce consumers, children, men, women in China to the Disney brands, equities. And when you build your park, and when you've got more of your consumer goods stores up, you're going to fill the park with people who are coming because they've learned about Disney through your DVDs. And the main point of the story, of course, uh, and why I'm telling it, is it showed counterintuitive thinking about what's the right strategic approach. Bob Iger is a classic study of many things. Bob was never one for big written strategies, but he had them clear in his head and he had them clear with the organization. Claret, claret calls. The other thing about Bob that was special, is special, was his identification with the people. He could go in and did go in to Disney World or Disneyland and walk around there. And he was a cast member, even as he was the CEO of this huge megatonic company. And he, he felt them and they felt him. And it's so important for a leader uh, to feel his or her people. And have his or her people feel them. 
as a person who's capable, who can lead them, and who cares about them. So coming up in your career, who are some of your mentors, or more importantly, how have you modeled their behavior in your career? What have you learned from from the mentors in your career? Well, I've had uh, the two most important mentors. I wouldn't wouldn't have called them that, but they certainly would be role models, and they become dear friend. They became dear friends in John's case, John Smale's case. In the case of John and uh, what they lived, and that that's the word they lived in their decisions, how they made decisions, how they acted, were several things that I learned from, and one was um, surely calling the shots the way it is, deep integrity, doing the right thing, making the tough choice, not the easy one, even if it rep- caused short-term sacrifice. And the and a second would be decisiveness. When we want to do something, do it. Do it, do it quickly, do it well. Uh, Ed, well. Ed took a discipline in a personal will, personal will and force to it, that was exemplary for me and I think for all of us. I go back to John, and uh, John's commitment, and it was certainly one I held deeply already, but John's commitment to uh, technology, to research and development, as the basis for the creation of great businesses and the needing to do that in the future was so fundamental. It was right at his bloodstream, and it was contagious, such as changing reporting lines making their R&D heads vice presidents, putting Gordon Brunner, the head of R&D, on the board, uh, creating a Vic Mills Society, many other structural things Mm -hmm. uh, that brought force and not just continuity, continuity to a commitment to the consumer and to product technology as the basis for creating whatever it would be, Pampers, Pringles, Crest, Tide, Swiffer, Febreze, uh, on we go. You could almost argue that it's it's kind of thinking big, a counter in a in a counterintuitive manner, changing reporting lines, putting people in different places. Well, that's right. It is thinking big. It's vision. A critical thing in all of this is your attitude toward the organization you're in, and an attitude of leaving it better for the future, and leaving it in condition that it can be sustained. That word sustain, all in capital letters, is all important. To make it sustaining requires new technology. But above all, it requires great people. We get great people, and we must. John, the idea of corporate culture is it's, it's used a lot today. Everyone's talking about corporate culture, startups, big companies. And many of us, so many of us at a Procter know the idea of the PVPs, the idea of purpose, values, and principles that frankly have guided our professional life. You actually sat down and helped put that in writing. What drove you to do something that would create such a defining moment for the culture? That was in 1986. It was the thought that it lodged in my mind for the first time 15 years before that, 1971. And I wrote a white paper then, which I didn't really distribute, I don't think, to anyone other than maybe my wife, Um, and I talked there about the importance, I thought, of writing down uh, what I thought were our values because I'd come to think they were so special. And I thought, why don't we share these things around? But we didn't do that. I thought it was important then because I thought it could help make sure we were clear what we were committed to. And also I thought it would build pride because it certainly had built my pride. 
with all these new young employees joining us, some from other companies, mainly RVI, I thought it important to try to articulate what were the driving forces behind P&G that made it great and made us who were part of it feel it was a very special company that needed these things needed to be preserved. And that brought us to the, of course, to the purpose and the values and the principles. They were really, uh, 90%, it was really a rearticulation of what I think we had lived as a company, believed in as a company. That that came fairly easily, though I must tell you, we agonized every every damn word. I mean, it was crazy. Uh, trust was a very important one we put in. I really, more and more since then even, have viewed trust among our among people as the glue that keeps us together, that allows us to communicate clearly with one another, honestly with one another. If you trust each other, you can say things to each other and not be walking on eggshells, at least and not the way you would if you didn't have that trust and you're a team. For common purpose, right? Yeah, common purpose. So we did it. I must tell you, not I never would have even believed that it would still carry the force it does today. It's a, a, a stated purpose that will never really, and set of principles will never fully fulfill. We won't. We'll come up short in some areas, but if we keep them, or maybe we modify them when we see they need to be done. They are a North Star for us. And why do we exist? Why do we view this company as something outside our family, perhaps, as a very important reason for what we can take value from? Well, it's because of a purpose. So, you know, in the span of both work and life, I want to shift gears a little bit to life. And they're both yeah. interconnected. You met your wife, Francie, early on, and, and you've spoken publicly of her. What was her role in your professional life? How did that personal affect the, the professional? Well, I've said of Francie, uh, quite simply, she made everything possible. I never would have achieved the success that I've been fortunate enough to have at P&G or in life in general if it weren't for my marriage to her. What did she give me? Above all, I'd say love. She gave me confidence. Of all the things that have built my confidence in the years, I really mean this, nothing has given me as much confidence as she agreed to marry me, literally. You'd have had to know me then to maybe appreciate why I felt that unlikely. <laughs> if you did, you could appreciate it. She was everything I could have dreamed of intellectually, spirit-wise, attractive. She's taking care of everything at home, everything. I've Never heard her complain. All the things she could have complained about, she'll tell me about some of them now, <laughs> long after the fact. But all the things, all the, all the things, yeah, all the things she could have applied, complained about that I did not do. Things I could have done more, she never did. Whatever the reason, uh, she just did everything. But she made me come to understand other and like other people. She's extremely affectionate. She's as outgoing as I'm not. And she made me come to appreciate the value of personal relationships in a way I hadn't before. She keeps me grounded in many ways. I'm a, I'm a person, I have, no, I have no trouble getting visions of what can be done. But she's helped me say, John, you're not seeing this right. You're not seeing this person right, in fact, she'd say. And I'd sometimes, I often disagree with her. 
And when I did, I was more often wrong than right in her instincts about people. So I've been a very lucky person. I've been lucky in so many respects, finding her first and foremost, finding P&G behind it, but right up there among the really the lucky things in life. And, and I'd say lucky in my children because the four of them have become my best friends. I want to ask about that, kids specifically. You know, a lot of our listeners are, like me, midway through their career, early families, having kids, and we're about, it's struggling. It's hard, more now than ever, now that we're home with the kids and we're working. I, I know Francie played a huge role in that, but how did you guys find that balance? And even more importantly, as a manager of others, how did you, how did you advise people to get that balance, to, to get the most out of home while not sacrificing work? Well, let me, let me take the first part of that first. How did I achieve balance? I think I probably ended up doing it imperfectly in hindsight. Hindsight's wonderful. But what I did do uh, was I was very conscious of it. I, my family life was troubled, my original family life. Uh, I came to really see the importance of family. I guess we all do. That's nothing novel about that. And I took steps, as very intentional steps, to try to make sure I was doing as well as I could. What were they? I certainly had dinner at home every time I could, and when I did, I was playing games with the kids as they were six, seven, eight, ten, always at the dining room table. We'd play games with salt and pepper shakers, how fast they'd go, how fast they'd catch up, who would catch who. We had two inviolate times during the year, even though I was working. I never changed this. I would always take at least two weeks of vacation in the summer and always two weeks during the, during the winter, and we would be together as a family, always, no exceptions. Uh, we were fortunate to have a place my wife's family had up in Canada, which we went to. And that was at a time early on where you didn't have any cell phones. You didn't have even any faxes. And we had I had to go into the mainland to get back in touch. Business went on. I also, I guess as every parent does, you do, I loved going to my kids' events. I went to kids at their sports events. I went to their plays. My kids said once on this point about time, spending time, they said one, what my son said, it's just very well. He said, oldest son, he said, Dad, if I measured your contact with us just in times of terms of time, you'd have probably gotten a B, maybe a B minus. He said, but what mattered to, to me he said, is that you were, when you were there, you were there intensely. You were there intensely at the moment. And we knew you were there every bit you could be. We'd go skiing in the winter during winter break. And I made sure I was on the slow ski lift. They wanted to go on the fast one. I said, no, let's go on the slow one. So going up the ski lift, we can talk longer. These are small things. One of the things that you fight for, right, is time. You got so much to do at work. You know family comes first. That's what I always said to our my people. I always said my what matters, what counts. Family comes first was always prominent in it. And the question you raise about your people. You know it and I, I know it. People, they'll, they're, it's important what you say and it's important what you write. But what's really important is what you do and how you make people feel. It's what's important is what you actually see you doing and how you make them feel. 
And if you're inquiring about their family, how are they doing? You know about their family. You're interested in it. It's a subject of conversation, genuine conversation. That says something about your attitude toward family. If they see you not making a big deal out of it, because it's not a big deal, but talking about your time with your kids and that it's rewarding to you and the meaningful is part of your life, I think that means something. That's what I think matters in, in terms of having an influence on what other people would do, not just with regard to a family, but regard to anything. You know, you reach my age, which is probably double yours, and you realize some things. Somebody was writing a book and asked me to do an interview. They said, have you thought about what your legacy is? I said, no, I've never thought about leaving a legacy or a term like that. And uh, I said, I've just tried to do my job as well as I could for the institution and for people and and be able to do something that will move it along for the future. I said, but what uh, I feel best about is whatever influence I've had in other people developing their own code of how they were going to live and work uh, as other people have helped me. And I said, as you think back, when you just move along in years, I think you will realize the most important thing you leave behind is not a legacy as such. Rather, it will be the influence you've had on other people by how they've observed you operate or, or work or act. And not only that, but how you've made them feel as a person, as an individual. I might just add one thing to that that I've come to believe in in a more concrete way than I would have if I were talking to you 10 years ago even. And that's the importance of what I call transformational relationships. Uh, there are all kinds of relationships in life. Uh, there are transactional relationships. We have them. We need them. They have them all the time. You have transactional relationships with a, with a bartender, with a dry cleaner. Uh, you have personal relationships. Those are very, very important with people you've come to know and depend on could be the teacher of one of your children. It could be certainly many people at work, uh, personal relationships. Once they've formed trust and you're counting on each other, vital. But there are a select other number of relationships that are, call them transformational relationships. And, and these are relationships which really, they change your life. They change the way you think about yourself, and they change the way that you think about other people. And we all have them. We probably don't call them that, or certainly I never did think call them that until I thought about it I had. But I think of the transformational relationships in my life, obviously starting with my wife. That goes without saying, of course, spouse. But I've had them at work. The relationship I had with with John Smale was transformational for a lot of reasons, but above all because of what he modeled, but because of the trust he placed in me. That's what made it transformational. 
the relationship with Jack Claggett way back when he was that two-up boss who invited me to have, that was transformational. To the day I die, I will never forget about he, him and his wife showing I mattered and cared. And we're all having transformational relationships with other people, or at least we can. I think it's terribly important we have transformational relationships, and it's harder with people who are different than we are. The opportunity, if we think about it, if we're more intentional, though you can't make them up, they have to come naturally in the end, um, based on mutual respect, they can change, and they will change people's lives. Ed Harness, who is a CEO in the toughest times, probably economically, and perhaps up to this one, in the company's history in the 70s, once walked by me in the corridor, 15 years before I became CEO, you know what he said to me? He said, John, take care of yourself. Make sure you're getting enough vacations. We may all have to come to depend on you one day. I couldn't wow. believe what he I couldn't believe what he just said. Hell, I wasn't sure I was gonna make it to the next level. Can you imagine him saying that? Fifteen years. We may have to depend on you one day. Take care of yourself. Make sure you get enough vacations. Holy smokes. Uh Another time, he was in Italy during that tough time I described earlier where everything was going south. And you know, he came for his first business review. In Europe, he'd just become CEO in 74. And I went through the business review and must have been uptight as all get out. And he, at the end of the review, we walked, just the two of us, back to the, the-, the elevator on the uh, third floor of a building in Aeor outside Rome. I'll never forget it. And you'd have to know Ed to appreciate this. He was a big man, former football player at Marietta College, one of the great humane men women I've ever known. And he put his arm on my shoulder and looked at me with a slight smile. And he said, John, he said, sometimes you just have to wait for the other shoe to fall. You're doing the right things. Believe me, everything will be all right. Wow. He must have recognized that I was tense, under pressure, and in a moment of unplanned, total candor, generosity, he said something to me, still early in my career, that basically conveyed trust and confidence. It didn't change probably the intensity with which I went back to work, but it did change my view of the nature of leadership and the nature of this man who, great human being. It's, you said earlier, it's not just what you say, it's what you do, you know, and it's not, only what you, it's not only what you do, it's how you make other people feel yeah. about themselves. Yeah. And I think the other piece of these transformational relationships is you seek them out. It's so interesting. They happen at pivotal moments and you don't know when they're going to be sometimes like the two up boss who invited you over to his house. That was a moment in time. And it, changed your trajectory, changed the way you, you felt. And later on in life, you, you're probably influenced to create those moments for other people as well and create those relationships. One tries to, of course. One plays back, I think, tries to play back what's been meaningful, what you've learned in life, what's been important to you. And you know everybody to different degrees at different times in their life is seeking reinforcement, seeking something I think P&Gers and everybody listening to this podcast 
moves forward with a good degree of well-earned confidence. But we've all had doubts at different times. We all can have questions at different moments. And to have somebody who you value value us for reasons that are credible and very spontaneous, unplanned, as you say, in the moment, that's how they usually do happen. That's at their, That's when they're most significant, right? It's when they are genuine and spontaneous and they happen because a person feels it. Yeah, that's life. And now a word from one of our partners. Today we're talking to former P&G officer and fellow P&G alum, Deb Kilty, who's the chair of the P&G Alumni Foundation, a charitable arm of the P&G Alumni Network that provides people in need with economic opportunity and a path to dignity. Deb, why the focus on economic empowerment? We focus on economic empowerment because what really unites us as P&G alums is our business training. In fact, if you really think about it, we were given many gifts in terms of our training, and it's those gifts that we like to give back. We were trained by some of the best business leaders in the world, and it's up to us now to leverage those skill sets and see if we can give back to those in need. So how does the foundation work? I assume it's a system of donations and grants? Yes. As most foundations, uh, we are a grant-making operation, and uh, we are simultaneously trying to raise funds. So each year, the alumni apply for our grants, and uh, it's quite a competitive process to receive one of our grants. It helps us to ensure that the impact is maximized. Concurrently, we're always trying to raise funds so we can give away more money in our grants. Can you share an example of one of the partners that you made a donation to and kind of what they've been able to do with the money? Let me just talk about two partners, one in the U.S. and one outside. Uh, This year, we gave money to Cincinnati Cooks. It's the free store food bank. Uh, We gave them a grant for their job training program and culinary training. It's got a real double win. They train individuals in need, and the food that they prepare is given to children in need in the after-school programs. There are over 10 P&G alumni involved in that, and that's what really makes us unique, is in fact the P&G on-the-ground involvement in these organizations. The second one I want to highlight just for this year is called Cooperative for Education, or Coed, in Guatemala. They serve impoverished communities of rural students, and they really try to provide them the computer and and literary skills needed to get jobs. There were three P&G alums involved in that one this year, and they were able to connect with other alums who happened to live in the area that they found out with through our network, uh, as well as somebody living in Wisconsin who had adopted a child from Guatemala, who all became uh, partners and uh, contributors in the Cooperative for Education. So how many years has the foundation been around? How many partners are out there? How much money has been donated? The foundation's been around for since the inception of the network, But really, only uh, since 2016 have we had a donor-advised fund, which has really enabled us to expand our efforts. To date, we're quite proud to have given $1.3 million in grants to over 80 organizations across 25 countries, and we're really just beginning. So Deb, how can people find out more about the foundation and get involved? Well, first of all, they could go to our website, pgalumnifoundation.org. And most importantly for us, donate. Donations of any size are accepted. And please check out our donor honor roll on the website. Also check out a video narrated by John Pepper on our website. John and Francie are fantastic partners with us. You could also become an ambassador for the foundation. Uh, 
leveraging our social media, helping us share our words, or in fact, as well, champion a grant, apply for a grant, and hopefully get one of our grants. Well, Deb, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and all the great work you guys are doing with the PNG Alumni Foundation. Thank you, Raman. And now back to the show. What is the idea of service and giving back mean to you? Because since you've left PNG, you know, you took the leadership role with the National Underground Railroad Museum. You and your wife, Francie, have become pretty active with the PNG Alumni Foundation. How have you been able to find and make the capacity to just give so much of your time and energy and resources? Well, as a matter of time, I don't sleep a lot. <laughs> I've, been, <laughs> I've, I've always been lucky. It's not true anymore. I now need seven hours sleep, but I used to be able to get by and seem to do pretty well on five hours sleep. Oh, but that's just an enabler. Of course, that's not the driving force. The driving force may be, as you know, I think about that question. It's a good question. It's just the appreciation of how fortunate I've been uh, as an individual by virtue of what people have done for me and, and experiences I've had in my life, education, uh, the sacrifices my parents made uh, to get me a good sacrifice to education. They do anything. I think most parents do. They do that. Their children are the most important thing, but this was beyond them, beyond for, for me. Uh, it's seeing the power of that education, seeing the power of mentorship in my own life, and it's, it's seeing these things and seeing there's a lot to be done in this world out there. Oh, it's a combination. I just marvel at the wonderful things that do happen, have happened, that people are doing right now. I see it in this COVID-19 epidemic, people coming together. I also see huge challenges. You know, I see 42% of the people in Cincinnati, uh, children in Cincinnati living in poverty. This is terrible. I see dropout rates of 25%. I know mentoring can cut that significantly, significantly. But it's nothing more complicated than playing back what what you've seen to be of value and feeling you owe something to give back, given all that you have to other people who haven't had it as good as you have. But if you have the capacity to do more, most people do, you do it. Always remember what Carol Tudhill, Carol, Carol was a wonderful HR leader at Proctor for many years and a good friend of mine. And I once asked her this question, you know, how do you do it? Your husband and you are both working full time. You've got a family of, I don't know how many children, three or four. And she's working in the community. I said, how do you do it? Oh, Carol, how do you make it happen? You know what she said to me? She said, John, I found if you really believe it's important, you'll make it happen. Now, you got to clear some things away, as I've said. I stopped playing golf. The, the day my son was born, I said, it ain't going to work. Now, my giving up golf was not a big personal sacrifice. I did play once or twice a week. I love getting out with my my buddies. It took five or six hours the way I played. Well, it was a heck of a lot of time. And I figured I'm not going to have the time to do that and do the rest of the stuff I want. I gave that up. You have to make choices. You can't do everything. And you yeah. can only take on and you can only take on so much. And I always thought very carefully, maybe in a nerd-like way, frankly, each year I thought about my priorities for the year ahead. I wrote them down. I wrote them down on what do I view as the main th things i got to do this year with my kids, with my wife, with Procter & Gamble, and maybe one or two other things that I'd be working on. I'd put them down. 
or just to try to have some sense of order. Uh, that was important to me. And I returned to him at the end of the year. And I'd say, look back at him and think, boy, I flunked that part of it. I did pretty well here. Could have done better here, et cetera. Uh, but it helped make choices. I think it would be more intentional about my choices. Putting things in writing, I'm literally writing notes as we're talking, or I, I plan in writing because taking it out of your head, putting it down on paper gives you something to react to, whether it's right or wrong. And, and I want to talk about the role writing has played in your life. You've obviously written a few books. Equally as impressive in my view as a digital guy is your Pepperspectives blog. I've become a almost very recent fan of it. One of the things that I love about the writing and the blog, it's not about being political, it's about being principled. You're, you're I don't want to say you're drawing a line in the sand, but you're you're taking a stand on issues. You've commented on the leadership in this country and whether it's working or whether it's not. And what what is the role of executive leaders to kind of call other executive leaders out? I think as a matter of principle, you have to have two things in mind. One, you have to call them as you as you see them. I, I think you have to hold a fairly high bar. You can't just speak out on everything. I mm-hmm. personally felt, and I won't dwell on this, you've seen my blogs, you know where I stand. I would rather speak on what do I see as the role of, of leadership. Please. At please. a national, national level or any other level. And I think it is to establish a vision of what's possible when we're at our best and outline a strategy and a plan, a set of plans on how to get there and express a set of values that show that we're all in this together and that we all count in carrying out this action to achieve a worthy goal that's improving life as it should be. The COVID-19 experience, like any great crisis, brings out the best and the worst in leadership. It reveals the best. It's being revealed in my own judgment right now in our own state of Ohio in the leadership of Governor DeWine in assembling a team and conveying the facts of the matter, the way things are. Winston Churchill is the example par excellence of leadership at a time of crisis. And every business has its crisis. He was utterly straight with the British people on the challenge, on the nature of it, on the hardship people would go through, on the fact that it would be everybody together to get through it. But he never failed to hold out hope, nor to fail on history and the lesson of history, to provide that hope that they would overcome this enormous challenge and would come out of it all right. That's what FDR did. Not to everybody's liking to be sure, and we can be sure on that, but that's what he did in the worst days of World War II. And that, I think, is what David Taylor, as the current leader of Procter & Gamble, is doing, as I've seen what he's expressed to the organization and being clear right from the beginning on here's where we are. We're not where we ought to be. Here's what we got to get right. Here are the plans we're going to follow to get there. Here are the values we're going to follow to get there. And we're going to make it happen. Constant communication, constant communication, 
not with just blah, 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 but communication with concrete updates and learnings on what we're doing and what we can do better. That's the role of leadership in any venue. And, it, and that's what P&G people do. And where people are working in other companies today and have come away with um, learnings they had from P&G and values and beliefs, I'm sure that's the way they're operating today. One of the things we have that I don't think any other company has in the world, to my knowledge, is this group of alumni for which this podcast and many others are being produced. No other company has four or 500 people coming together and talking about P&G the way our alumni and you all do. Some who are with P&G as short as two years and some as long as 40 years or longer. And I'm just so glad about this alumni association and that it's alive and well. And I give great credit to Ed Tausia and to others who help make it go and to everybody who's part of it. John, I feel the same way. I want to talk about the future a little bit. Something you speak a lot about is your children and your grandchildren and how they inspire you. Uh, what, what do you think they have learned from you over the years? They always heard me talking about doing the right thing. You always got to do what you got to think is right. Whatever you do, do that. They, they said, we always knew you really worked hard, that you had to work hard for what you got. I was motivated from the beginning by both a feeling of confidence that came from a number of things, but also a feeling of insecurity. For a long, long time, I felt I could fail. Now, I didn't worry too much about it. I mean, I felt I might not make it to P&G, but I felt, well, I'll go and be a lawyer or do something. But I had both a feeling, I think, of a certain degree of insecurity that drove me. I never felt I, quote, had it made. It's fair to say I've been a pretty driven person. And, and the other thing they said is, we knew you're, you really cared about people, individual people. You talked a lot about people, 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 people at work and about mentoring and about your mentee and so on. My children, my grandchildren is, my, is the, my greatest hope for the future. On a personal level, my greatest hope is my grandchildren. So, John, we've only got a few minutes left, and this has just been such a fascinating and just interesting conversation. But switching gears one last time to some just fun questions about you. What's what's something about you that no one expects? Oh, I don't know. I don't know what they'd expect. I don't know if they'd <laughs> expect. I grew, I grew up to be a very timid soul, very uncertain if I could lead. They certainly wouldn't know or have any reason to be interested in the fact that I I like Grater's Black Raspberry Ice Cream. We have that in common. That's for sure. Well, most people do. I was on the advisory board of graders, and 28% of all their many flavors happens to be your favorite and mine. When it comes to escaping, right, in the media, movies and books, what's, what's a movie or a book that, that, that you can really relate to? Oh, there's so many. I love movies. I had more opportunity to watch movies during this period of time in a long time. My favorite movie in that regard, to kind of respond to what you, I think you have in your mind, would be 12 Angry Men. <laughs> what I like about it is the, the spirit of inquiry, which Henry Fonda pursues. He starts out being the one, one juror, as you remember, who wasn't ready to vote guilty immediately. 
and he was not convinced and would not agree. And everybody wanted to get out to the ball game and get out of this hot, unconditioned room. And he wouldn't let it go. And he kept forcing it in a spirit of inquiry. It revealed in blazing technicolor the issue of implicit biases, which were held, wouldn't have called it that then, by so many of the different jury members. Implicit bias about that young Latin boy. It's a story of courage, of integrity, of open-mindedness, finally, of weakness, going with the crowd. That one guy would keep going back and forth, standing up. So that, uh, of course, I've read countless books and forgotten most of them. I keep notes on a lot of them. The one I appreciated most this past two years would be Soul of America by John Meacham, because it brings out both the challenges this country has faced and the way it's overcome them when we're our best. And that's life, isn't it? Uh, facing challenges and overcoming them. And we've got such challenges today. We need to overcome them in our country. God willing, I hope we will. I hope we can come together as a country in a way we've been torn apart. As we've always, we've been historically more than people will be willing to grant, but not, not so much as today where it's become a matter of personal character valuation what side you're on, and we have families not able to talk to each other sometimes because they're on different sides of the spectrum politically. That's not the way it should be. That's not the way it's always been. So I hope we can, and as I, my aspirations for the future is that we can come together as a world and as a nation on those things we have to be together on, and we're not going to have the world or nation we want. We're not going to have the climate environment we want if we don't come together as a world around this issue. In our own community, we've got the issue of racism and in our country. It's been our proverbial Achilles heel going all the way back to the tragic part of our history. And we're still working on it. And we can't give up on it. We've got to keep working on it by knowing each other, not cataloging each other by by certain bumper stickers or preconceived notions, but knowing each other as individuals, not only across race, but poverty lines and so on. These are all things I go back to my grandchildren and young people in general, not just them. I'm hopeful they know they'll come in with more enlightened views, but you can't take it for granted. Uh, this takes leadership at every level, starting with, in our country, the president, but then at our governor level, senators, Companies like our own, it's not just about the profit, but with that profit comes opportunities and responsibilities to people, employees, communities, of course, consumers from which it all has to grow. Well, last question for you. What's one final piece of advice or a challenge you would give to the next generation? It would be, these are what I most want to leave behind for my children or anybody taking the time to listen to me, okay? It would be three things that I'd ask them to do. One, I'd ask them to believe in themselves. Believe in yourself. Believe in your best self. And to do that, be your authentic self. A second 
is to do what you believe is right. Not what's expedient, uh, not what's comfortable. No often pushing against the grain, not knowing where it will lead. Knowing it may involve short-term sacrifice for sure, but do what you believe is right. And the third is love people. That's the third. I'm not saying you love people, all people the same. Of course you won't. You love those closest to you, your family, in a way different than anyone else. But love, enter a relationship loving people, seeking the best in them, being open to the best in them. I have found that to be so enriching personally and so important. Believe in yourself. Do what you believe is right. Love people and approach relationships with a notion and intent of seeing the world through the other person's eyes as best you can. If I could add anything to that, it would be to repeat just what I said before. Remember, when all is said and done, what is it we leave behind? What is it we truly leave behind? And for me, it will be the influence we've had, hopefully for the better on other people whose lives we've touched, those closest to us, those with whom we've worked, what we've left behind, and what we've exemplified to them by what we've done, and very importantly, by how we've made them feel as individuals, their own sense of worth, their own sense of confidence, their own sense of belonging. So there you have it. John, um, I, this has been a fantastic conversation. I just, I can't thank you enough for just being so generous with your time and your experience and your stories. It's just been a privilege hearing, hearing you talk, asking you questions. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I hope it's of value to some people in some way. That's all. Thank you <laughs> very much. For, thank you for arranging this. And that's our show. Like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now, here's a preview of next week's episode. Work-life balance is always a challenge, but some things have to give here. I mean, there's no possible way I could have been the perfect wife, the perfect mother, the perfect charity hostess, you know, the perfect um, business person, perfect CEO. And, you know, like, you know, my house has never looked like Martha Stewart just left. And so you just have to decide for you what is most important. And, um, and I think you have to really say, you know, I just can't do it all. I don't think men or women these days, it's just there's so much going on. I just don't think you can really do it. And you have to just say what's most important to you. And then, you know, try to live that truth if you can.
That's it for this week. I've been Andrew Tarvin. I'm still Roman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.